Well, next week, as Chris shared just a few moments ago, we launch into the new fall schedule. That means a whole uh, lot of exciting changes. We'll have a barbecue together. Anyone looking forward to that? Good. No one. I'll be there. One more time. Who's looking forward to the barbecue? Okay, good. Wow, man. I was getting scared there for a minute. Baptists who don't like barbecue? Why? Word. And then, of course, we will also launch into a, a host of new Veritas classes. I want to encourage you to, to come to those. If you have not been in the habit of coming to Veritas, let me challenge you as your pastor to, to begin that process of being educated theologically. One other change that will happen next week is we will also launch into a new sermon series. I've received some emails from from a few folks who've heard about the series, and one comment went something like this. You're going to finish John in one more week? It's taken over a year to get through 11 chapters. Well, we're going to take a break in the Gospel of John. I have felt compelled for several months now that we need to uh, go deeper into the reality that is God. And so I have been working hard to prepare a rather lengthy sermon series on the attributes of God. And so next week we will launch into that. We'll begin with an introduction to the series. And I just need to tell you that I am really, really excited about this series. Uh, When we finish that series, uh, we will move back into the Gospel of John, fear not, and we will conclude uh, that uh, unbelievable gospel together. Before we open God's Word this morning, will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for these songs that exalt the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this local church that loves your word, that loves the gospel. And Lord, as we uh, prepare uh, for a new series next week, I pray that uh, you would challenge us, that you would warm our hearts to the truth of your word, that we would go uh, deeper into the reality of who you are, that we would come to a better understanding of of, uh, your attributes, which would lead us to uh, a, a right worship of you, the great God, the King of the universe. And so, Lord, today with the passage before us, some things that are are very applicable to uh, where we are as a nation, where we are as a church family. I pray that you would do uh, a good work of grace, that you would uh, challenge your people, that you would convict your people, uh, that we would be honest and transparent before you, and that as we uh, surrender ourselves afresh to you, that work of grace would continue in our lives. And we know that you will receive the glory, so we give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you would agree with me that we live in a very unique period as citizens of the United States. We live in an age, a post-9-11 age, where profiling, for the most part, is frowned upon. And yet, I'm sure you would also agree that profiling enables us to get a quick thumbnail sketch of a person. You've all done it. Many of you were at the fair a few weeks ago, and you run into different kinds of people, and you notice things about a person. 
and you begin to catalog some things about that person, be it for the good or bad. What are the person's characteristics? What are this individual's strong points? What are his or her weak points? And what can we learn from such a person? This morning, I want to go against this tradition that we've adopted in American culture, this reaction to profiling. And I want to profile for a few moments a character in the scriptures. I want to profile King Solomon. I want to have you open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Kings. Some of you may wonder, how in the world am I going to find 1 Kings? Well, 1 Kings and 2 Kings are between 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And so, go to the Old Testament and turn to the book of 1 Kings. I want to begin by directing your attention to 1 Kings chapter 8. And by way of introduction, I want to profile this very interesting and important figure in the Old Testament, and that is King Solomon. I want you to notice first in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 57. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 57. The passage reads, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Those are the words of this man we will profile for the next few minutes, King Solomon. I want you to see first is that King Solomon was a man who loved the Lord God. He loved God deeply. And we see those thoughts are reflected here in this and many other passages throughout the Old Testament. I want you to not only see that King Solomon loved God deeply, I want you to see that this was a man who was a man committed to equity and justice. He was a man committed to doing things right, a man committed to justice. If you go back in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 28, we see this very important quality that emerges in King Solomon. 1 Kings three twenty-eight, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king, that is King Solomon, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. One of my favorite times, and some of you are not going to like this, one of my favorite times is when an election cycle comes to us as the people of this country. Is anyone with me? I mean, there's some weird stuff going on right now. There are some very, I'm going to be positive this morning. There's some very interesting candidates who want to be president of the United States. 
Now you're wondering who I think are interesting candidates. There are some very weird candidates who want to be president of the United States. But amen. But one thing is for sure. Whether you land on a, a liberal spectrum or a conservative spectrum is we all desire a man or a woman to be president who is a, a person of justice. Whoever that person is, we want that person to be a person of justice. King Solomon was such a man. We see that he was a man committed to loving God. He was a man who was a a person of justice. And then finally, I want you to see that King Solomon was a man of wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 29, if you'd read those words with me. 1 Kings 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon, what? Wisdom. And understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Here is a man who is an incredibly gifted man. He was a man of wisdom. Look at verse 34 in chapter 4. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. I just started a book yesterday that really has nothing to do with the sermon this morning. But it's a book on the city of Dubai. And as I read about this this unbelievable city that I showed Jereen a photograph of the region where Dubai sits today in 1990. Just prior to when we were married. You know what was in Dubai in 1990? A whole lot of nothing. The Hilton Hotel. Desert. Now you look at Dubai. It is it is an un. Believable city. A city where the tallest skyscraper sits. The skyscraper that is twice the size of the Empire State Building. That sways like a reed in the wind. Yeah, I want to go to the top of that skyscraper. But the reason I show this story is you, you look at Dubai and you look at the, the outskirts of Dubai and you, you see the, the desert. And you hear about the, the dust storms. And you read about men who have died in the desert because they went for a series of hours without water. This passage tells us that people of all nations in this region in the Middle East, they would come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. No cars, no metro. They would walk or ride on a camel because they were so impressed with this man's wisdom. Then look with me at 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 12. Again, the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Move forward to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 4. Now we learn about the queen of Sheba. 
The queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, and there was no more breath in her. She was blown away by King Solomon. Now look with me at verse 23 and 24 of chapter 10. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his mind. This is a man who is committed to God. This is a man committed to justice. This was a man who was a man of wisdom. Yet, you knew it was coming. Yet, behind all the luster, behind all the accolades, something diabolical was lurking beneath the surface in King Solomon. Something diabolical was smoldering like a a partially extinguished campfire in the forest. Something was smoldering in the heart of Solomon and only one being beyond Solomon knew what was smoldering and that was the living God. And these hidden embers were about to erupt into a massive forest fire that would have grave consequences for this king. This morning, as we come together to worship, you say, I am committed to God. I am committed to justice. I am committed to wisdom. You may be here this morning and you you have a, a passion for these things. You may be here and you say, I have friends in this community who regard me as a trustworthy man or woman. I am regarded as a man or a woman of integrity in the marketplace. You have high morals. You, you always keep your word. At least that's what people perceive on the outside. But is it possible? Is it possible that something is smoldering deep down in your heart and the only person that knows about it is your God? I want to give you some examples of what smoldering affections look like. You may be smoldering morally. Men in particular, your eyes may be wandering. Your imagination is running wild. You may be smoldering doctrinally or theologically or in your approach to the Christian life as you find yourself slowly moving away from God. And the questioning process has begun. Where you begin to question the purposes of God. You begin to question the plans of God. You begin to doubt the, the, the character of God, His attributes. You, you doubt His goodness. You question His providence. Or as we learned last week, before Jonathan Edwards was converted, he railed against his sovereignty. Such as a man or a woman who begins to smolder doctrinally before God. You may look good on the outside. You may look good externally, but on the inside, you and God alone realize and you admit that you are committing the sin of idolatry. Calvin rightly said, 
that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Do you know that I have shared that quote over the last 25 or 30 years, believe it or not, which means that I'm officially numbered among the old, the aged? I've shared that quote to people, and people have looked me in the eye, and they have said, that is not true. My heart is not a perpetual idol factory. And usually in one of my more passive moments, I will sit and I will listen and I will wag my head. But on the inside, I say to myself, if you don't believe that the human heart is a perpetual idol factor and you're bold enough to tell someone that Calvin was wrong, then you've really got problems. Because Calvin was right on target. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory that we will all battle until we receive our glorified bodies. Well, the title of the message this morning is Demolishing the High Places, the Danger of a Divided Heart. And I want to submit to you that no matter where we are in life, no matter how old you are or how young you are, no matter how much experience you have in the Christian life, whether you're just getting started in the Christian life, you're a rookie, or you're a veteran, we all have a little bit of Solomon within us. The external appearances may look good. They may be promising, but internally, there is a real chance, there is a real possibility for compromise to grab us by the throat. Would you turn in your Bibles with me? to 1 Kings chapter 11. And I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word as we begin to unpack this text together. 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Brace yourself. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as, his, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. You may be seated, and may God bless the reading of his word. This morning we will learn, as we have already very vividly read, that compromise grabbed King Solomon 
by the throat. And the question I want to pose this morning is this. What led to the fall of King Solomon? And by way of practical application, what can we learn as a result of studying the story? First of all, what led to the fall of King Solomon? I would have you see in verses 1 to 4. In verses 1 to 4, we see the, the first answer to the question, what led to the fall of King Solomon? The first part of the answer is that foreign women turned the heart of Solomon. That's the first answer to the question, what led to his fall? It was foreign women. And what we find in this passage is that Solomon was a bit of a ladies' man, was he not? You're like, duh. <laughs> Solomon loved foreign women. Well, there's something I want you to see about these foreign women as the Scripture describes them. First, understand that these ladies were pagan idolaters. Very clearly, we learn that they were pagan idol worshipers. And this passage tells us something very interesting that we, I, I stopped for a moment and had you brace yourselves, is he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I was not a math major in college. In fact, I did rather poorly in every math class I ever took. I got this one. 1,000. Right? 700 plus 300 equals 1,000 women. I can just imagine what the men in this room are thinking right now. Are you out of your skull? Solomon, what were you thinking on a practical level? But there's something that's even more intense on the practical level, and we'll examine that. But I want you to see, secondly, in verse 2, his approach to these women. We are told that he clung to these in love. That Hebrew word translated clung in the English means to be deeply attracted to. It means to stick together. It means to pursue someone or something. The NAS and the NIV translate that Hebrew term as follows. Solomon held fast to these in love. I think the way that young people would describe it or translate it at this point, a loose translation would say he was into these women. He was really into 1,000 women. Or better yet, he dug them. Right? King Solomon dug these women. He clung to these women. Now, these pagan idolaters turned the heart of King Solomon, and the Bible said that his heart was not true to God. Verse 3, 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods we know that King Solomon was raised in his home by his father, who was King David, to be a monotheist. What's a monotheist? We worship the one God of the universe. The way we, we would describe that on, in these days, the one God, 
who reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we see that he moves from monotheism to polytheism. It's these foreign pagan idolaters, the 1,000 women that led him to idol worship, to be a polytheist. And the passage tells us this, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. I hope when you read those words that you get the shivers. I hope when you read those words that you don't say to yourself, oh, what a wretched man was King Solomon. I hope you will say in a moment of humility, may that never be me. And men, it doesn't take 1,000 wives or concubines to lead you in that direction. We can stick to one wife and still move in a direction of idolatry. I want you to see something by way of practical application as we look at, I want to refer to as God's precept. You see, King Solomon had a memory lapse. He forgot God's precept. And I want to show it to you as you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And I don't know if you realize it, but this verse in chapter 24, Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 Especially since the SCOTUS decision, especially since the the decision that was handed down by the Supreme Court, this now becomes a very controversial and countercultural passage. It never has been before in redemptive history. Now it is. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his what? His wife. A man shall leave his father and his mother. What I learned about in Multnomah University 30 years ago. To leave, cleave, and become one flesh. That's this passage. I can see some of you who Doreen and I have done premarital counseling with. Yeah, I remember that. You get an A. To leave, cleave, and become one flesh. Who leaves? The man leaves his home. He leaves mom and dad. He finds a lovely woman. They cleave together and they become one flesh. Notice the man does not find a man. The woman does not find a woman. And so this is an incredible passage because in light of the recent decision that was handed down, we see that we are now even more countercultural. And will you with me continue to proclaim this truth? That a man will leave his home and find a beautiful woman and cleave and become one flesh and start a family as man and a woman. Homosexuality is a sin before Almighty God. And so God's intention has always been and will always be that a man and a woman will come together in a monogamous relationship. There's something else that emerges if you would turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Another precept that Solomon seemed to forget. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. By the way, I love to hear the sound of the Bible pages. I preach with an iPad. I read with a Kindle. 
I'm not into the Kindle and the iPad for reading scripture. So I love to hear those pages. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart will what? Turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, we're going to focus on the first part of this verse. He acquired more than one wife. But we also see as we read the book of 1 Kings that King Solomon did accumulate massive quantities of money and gold. And so he violates the word of God. God specifically prohibits kings from having multiple wives. In fact, God used his mother specifically to warn him in this regard. John Frame says, There are different kinds of speech in Scripture, commands, assertions, promises, and the like. When God commands, I bet you can tell me what Frame's going to say. When God commands, we are to obey. When he asserts, We are to believe him. When he promises, we are to embrace and trust those promises. Thus, we respond to the sheer authority of God's word. Those are some of the precepts of God. But now I want you to see the purpose of God. The purpose behind the commandments is very clear. And I tell young people this all the time, that for every commandment we find in Scripture, it's there for a reason. It's there to protect you. It's there to provide for you. See, God is not a cosmic killjoy. He utters commands in his word because he has your best interests in mind to protect you and to provide for you. And we see that. Here, where God does not want the hearts of his people to turn away from him. And so he says, steer clear of having many spouses. God knows the deceptiveness of the human heart. And he understands, because he is God, that intermarrying with these pagans will turn the hearts of his people and ultimately encourage them to worship and serve other gods. Now, the principle is played out again in the New Testament. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I can't tell you how many times, especially when I served as a youth pastor many years ago, where I would hear the phrase, dating evangelism. Have you ever heard that phrase? Dating evangelism, where a young lady will, who is a Christ follower will find a, a young man who is not a follower of Christ. And she will bring him home to mom and dad and say, this is my new boyfriend, Tom. It's my new boyfriend, Philip. And he's not a follower of Christ, but my, my passion is to, to lead him to Christ one day. It's called dating evangelism. Well... Dating evangelism, if you might call it that, is is out of step with the word of God. And I realize when I say that I, I step on some toes. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 tells us this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light? with darkness and i hear all i anticipate 
Like a good attorney would anticipate all of the objections at this point. And I've heard the objections and they go something like this. That text is about marriage, not dating. Okay. What is the purpose of dating? Just so you can have someone's hand to hold? Just so you can take someone to the movies? The purpose of dating is to lead to marriage. And so, young men and young women, when you find that special person, make sure, make for certain that that young man or that young woman is a Christ follower. Not in name only, but find someone who loves the Lord, his God or her God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what Solomon neglected, among many other things. But we see, first of all, that foreign women turned the heart of Solomon. There's a second way that he went down the wrong path, and that is this. Foreign gods, as we've already indicated, foreign gods turned the heart of Solomon. Will you go back with me to 1 Kings chapter 11? 1 Kings chapter 11, and read with me, beginning in verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, or the mountain east, or on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. I want to take just a few moments and, and walk you through what I like to call the, the path of idolatry, because Solomon, be, Solomon began to forge this path for idolatrous behavior. We see in verse 5, it began with his commitment, his new commitment to the Ashtoreth, the, the vile goddess of the Sidonians. This was a, a god of sex and fertility whose worship involved licentious or wicked rites and the worship of the stars. You think about the, the New Age movement and how so many people in our culture have a fascination with polytheism or the, the worship of many deities or the worship of Mother Earth. That's really what's happening here in King Solomon's heart is he worships, he bows down to the Ashtoreth. Also in verse 5, we see Milcom, or better put, Molech, whose worship involved, believe it or not, human sacrifice, especially children. And of course, human sacrifice is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. Verse 7 says he became also committed to Chemosh, the national deity of the Moabites and the god of the Ammonites. These were the pagan deities that were introduced into Jerusalem by Solomon. I read at the end of verse 7 how he, he set these up on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And it just, it just gives me the willies. That this man who was previously committed to God, 
This man who was a a man of justice and equity, a man of wisdom, a man who people would walk for hundreds of miles to meet, to see this and witness this godly man. Now he sets up pagan idols to worship east of Jerusalem. Verse verse 6 tells us that what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 7 tells us that he, he built the high places for false gods. The average high place would, as Bible commentators tell us, have an altar, a, a carved wooden pole that depicted the female goddess of fertility. We've learned about her, the Asherah, a stone pillar symbolizing the male deity. So the female get the wood. The males get the stone and also some kind of a building. And at these places of worship, the people sacrificed animals. And at some high places, as we've already seen, they sacrificed children. They would burn incense to their gods. They would pray to these pagan deities. They would sacrifice meals. They'd ate sacrifice meals. And they were involved with male or female cultic prostitutes. And you say, this is absolutely unbelievable. Who would involve themselves with such an idolatrous act? And although most high places were part of the worship of Baal, the Ammonite god that we have just learned about, Molech, and the Moabite god, Chemosh, were also worshipped at similar high places. Of course, Scripture speaks extremely negative about these heathen places of worship. And still, they played a central role in the lives of many people in these days. And King Solomon was a willing party to this idolatry. When the Israelites came earlier in redemptive history to the land of Canaan, they were ordered to destroy the high places of the people who lived in the land. Hold your finger in 1 Kings and move over to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, verse 24. I want you to see in several places where Israel is very clearly called to take down the high places. Exodus 23, verse 24. They are told, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Come with me to Exodus chapter 34, verse 13. Exodus 34, verse 13. Where we read, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Look with me at Deuteronomy, a few books over. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5. Deuteronomy 7, verse 5. 
But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. This is radical stuff, is it not? Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in this way. You say, what's that all about? Well, you had some who would say, I am committed to monotheism. And God was honored and glorified by that. Then you had others who came along and said, well, I continue to worship the living God, but I will also worship these pagan deities. And that's where we find King Solomon. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. We see that the motivation in 1 Kings chapter 11, the motivation behind the high places, why did King Solomon do it? He did it for his wives. He did it for his wives. You have a a pagan idolater times 1,000 nagging King Solomon. And so he, he, he erects these idols east of Jerusalem to, to pacify his pagan wives. I want you to see quickly God's precept, and I think we know it very, very well. God's precept here is that God forbids idol worship. He forbids idol worship. Exodus chapter 20 says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, God, the creator, has the power and the right to impose his law on his creatures. Do you believe that? God as the sovereign one, as the creator, has the the right and the ability to impose his laws on his creatures. One writer says it this way, God's authority is his right to command, his right to tell us what we ought to do. When he issues commands, he is supremely right in doing so. Thus, his word creates for us an obligation to obey. When he makes promises, we can trust them without question, for they are infallibly right and true. What are the implications? God's authority, then, may never be questioned. God's authority is absolute in the sense that his covenant transcends all other loyalties. We are to have how many other gods before us? 
no other gods. He is to have, he is to be the sole love in our lives. He is to be the highest love in our lives. I'm rereading a book that I read in Bible college 30 years ago. It's a book that I am quickly learning. I did not appreciate nearly enough in 1985. I remember I read the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, penned in 1973, I believe. And I can tell by the highlights and the lack of highlights in the book that I didn't appreciate it in 1985 as I should. In fact, I I will confess to you, I think a few of you have heard this story, that when J.I. Packer, who is no slouch, came to speak at Multnomah University in the mid-80s, I fell asleep. What an embarrassment. Where one of the premier theologians and leaders of the church came to proclaim the word of God, and I fell asleep. And so rereading, knowing God, and I I would encourage you, I would challenge you, especially as we move into a new series on the attributes of God, I'd encourage you to read or even reread Knowing God by Dr. Packer. Here's what he says. Do we apply the authority of the Bible and live by the Bible, whatever anyone may say against it, recognizing that God's word cannot but be true? And that what God has said, he certainly means, and he will stand behind it. If not, we dishonor the Holy Spirit who gave us the Bible. I did a book review about a year ago. I reviewed one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's little book on Calvinism that he wrote in the mid-1800s. And from time to time... People will weigh in on these reviews, and sometimes it's not very pretty. And my typical custom is just not to respond. It just, it it really doesn't serve anyone any good to respond to these kinds of ridiculous arguments. Well, an individual said all manner of, of, he had all manner of criticism against what I had said about Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his views on Calvinism. Well, another gentleman decided to jump in the fray and, and defend what I had written. So it's kind of fun where they go back and forth and back and forth, and I just get to read it. It's kind of neat. Well, the last post, the gentleman that was defending my words and Spurgeon's words said something like this to the detractor. I notice that you never once use scripture, and that's a problem. And I thought, oh boy, I can't imagine what this guy's going to say back. He's going to have a whole host of scripture verses to try to advance his cause. You will not believe what he came back with. He said, I don't use scripture because scripture is not authoritative. (laughs) You see why I don't respond typically? Packer says this, if we don't hold the word of God to be authoritative, we dishonor the Holy Spirit who gave us the Bible. God's precept is, I will be worshiped alone. I will have the sole affection and loyalty of your heart. And I want you to see quickly God's purpose. The the purpose here is that God, once again, does not want the hearts of his people to turn away from him. He desires the complete 
allegiance of his people, for them to recognize that he is the all-sufficient God. We learned about that as Chris read Psalm chapter 16. That God desires to work for his people and for his people to trust in him. So we've seen that it was the, it was the foreign women, it was these pagan idolatries, and it was the foreign gods, these pagan deities that turned the heart of King Solomon. As we conclude this morning, I want to ask, what can we learn from it? And really, as we, as we conclude, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we get very practical. So I want to offer you a few principles for avoiding a divided heart. And the first is this, never assume. I had teachers tell me that, never assume. Remember that one? Never assume that you are immune from compromise. Never assume that you are immune from compromise. I have had people tell me to my face, I would never commit that sin. And then they move forward in the years ahead and commit that sin. Even if God has blessed you beyond measure, never assume that you are immune from compromise. You remember Solomon's glory in the land was unsurpassed. His wisdom was unrivaled, yet he fell into sin as he committed idolatry. A few weeks ago, a group hacked into a website. It's a website that I had never heard of, thankfully so. But now Ashley Madison, the website that glorifies secret adultery where you can go onto this site, pay an enormous fee, leave your email address, and have a hookup with someone that's not your spouse, and no one will ever know about it. Well, this group decided they were going to expose the Ashley Madison website, the website that promises adultery for a fee, but no one will ever find out about it. And the hackers made this huge list public, I remember one Christian researcher, Ed Stetzer, he wrote a piece that still scares me to death. He said that in days ahead, 400 pastors will offer or tender their resignations because they had logged on and paid a fee to be a part of the Ashley Madison website. It wasn't too many days later that I heard about a seminary professor who confessed that he had been on the website. He left a note at his house, and his wife came home and found him dead. A few days later, I heard about a very prominent Christian leader who has lost his job because he too had logged on in a a moment of weakness and curiosity to the Ashley Madison website. He is currently on a leave of absence. Thankfully, with this Christian leader, I see good signs of, of repentance that has emerged. And here's what he says. He says, first, I felt the grace of fear. And this is right when he's logging on. Second, I felt the grace of shame. I was there long enough to leave an old email address. And within minutes, I left, never to return. R.C. Sproul Jr. wrote, The grace of God's judgment bore its fruit, and by his grace I repented of my sin. By his grace I have also received his forgiveness, the outworking of his love. Prophetic providence had done its good office. Jesus 
died for this sin, but there are still earthly consequences. R.C. Sproul Jr. concludes, The reality is that we all sin before the eyes of the watching God of heaven and earth. Not only that, but all of our sins will one day be publicly exposed. On that great day of judgment, there will be no delete. There will be no erase. There will be no way to hide all that we have done. It is my hope that this kind of cyber assault might wake us up to this reality. Close quote. Will you join with me and pray for R.C. Jr.'s mom and dad, one of my great heroes. His, his dad has probably influenced me more than just about any living man on this planet, R.C. Sproul Sr. We pray for Dr. Sproul and his wife Vesta and their family as they walk their son through this very difficult season. But for each of us, let, let us wake up. Let us realize that we are never immune from compromise. A second principle for avoid, avoiding a divided heart is that compromise does not happen overnight. You see, when we think about the Ashley Madison dilemma, I can tell you this, that uh, a man didn't wake up on a Monday morning and say to himself, oh, I think I'll go on to Ashley Madison website and commit adultery. That sounds fun. No, it didn't happen like that. There were slow progressive steps that begin to accumulate in these men and women who went on to this site. Compromise occurs in a, a series of small sinful choices that grow over time. And as James 1 indicates, now we're on the treadmill of sin and sometimes there's no looking back. The progression of compromise in the life of King Solomon is he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. He disobeyed God's instructions and purchased large quantities of horses and chariots. And he violated the word of God by multiplying gold. We've seen that passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17. The third principle for avoiding a divided heart is this, is that compromise generally leads to greater steps of Compromise. Would you turn in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 17? Second Kings chapter 17, and look with me at verse 41. And this is a passage that, if you're unfamiliar with it, I hope you will highlight it, and I hope you will meditate on this. And frankly, I hope it, it scares you to death. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord. Would you stop right there? That's where we want to be, right? Where God is our only allegiance. We fear the living God, but continue. And also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. And so you see that compromise not only leads to greater steps of compromise in our personal lives, but then we influence the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Compromisers will leave a man-centered legacy of duplicity and hypocrisy. 
The great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry says that sin brings ruin on families, cuts off legacies, alienates estates, and lays men's honor in the dust. There's a Puritan who is in touch with reality. You see, Solomon's compromise led, you see, to almost 300 years of idolatry in Israel and the divided kingdom. The high places were not demolished until when? Until the reign of the godly young king, Josiah. Josiah walked in the way that his God called him to walk. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2. And I I pray and trust that you're encouraged by this. In fact, let's read to get the context here. You'll love this. 2 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Do we have anyone here that is 8 years old? There's everyone in children's church. If you're 8 years old, raise your hand. Okay, this is for you. Is that Nico? Can I see it? Yeah. Josiah was Eight years old when he began to reign. Nico, would you stand up just for a minute? Thanks. Gives you an idea. So Josiah becomes the king. He's eight years old when he begins to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now you're as old as me. Give or take lots of extra years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath, verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or the left. 2 Kings chapter 23, look at it with me, beginning in verse 13. I just want to read this whole thing because I I hope it blows you away. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem. Who set up the high places east of Jerusalem? King Solomon. To the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And I hope you say to yourself, hey, I know all about those guys. That's what we're studying in 1 Kings 11. And he broke, Josiah broke the pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. This is awesome. Moreover, at the altar of Bethel, the high places erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Verse 19. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. 
Josiah obeyed God. I would ask this morning, are, are you in the habit of demolishing the high places in your life? Are you in the habit of, of walking with God like Josiah, a man who refused to turn to the left or turn to the right? Or is your heart becoming slowly like King Solomon? Number four, I want to encourage you to guard your heart from straying from intimacy with Christ. You see, we are always one step away from idolatry and finding satisfaction in other things or false gods. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says it this way, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. One Puritan writer, Henry Skugel, a man who had a, a, an amazing influence in the life of George Whitfield. You see, we all know Whitfield. No one knows Skugel, but it was Skugel's little book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, that George Whitfield read, and God used that book to open his heart to the gospel. Here's what Henry Skugel says. He says, The worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its delight. That's worthy to go on your refrigerator. That's worthy to go on your screensaver. That's worthy to go in the flyleaf of your Bible. The worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its delight. And once again, as I've shared this quote over the years, I have had people say to me, no, 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 that's not true. And whenever I hear that, you know what it tells me? This person is struggling with idolatry. The worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He goes on. The soul of a man is of a vigorous and active nature and hath in it a raging, inextinguishable thirst. A kind of fire always catching at some object or another. Here's what we need to remember. We are always gravitating toward worship or idolatry. There is no middle ground. And so are you, are you gravitating toward worshiping the living God or are you settling for lesser things? Which direction is your soul leaning? Are the coals of your life burning with desire for Jesus? Or do you see the subtle glow of embers filled with compromise? Finally, and we'll close. The fifth way or principle of avoiding a divided heart is to beware of the danger of syncretism. You say, I have no idea what that means. Syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism, and I'll actually read from Webster's New World Dictionary, is the combination or reconciliation of different beliefs in religion. And so here is the definition of syncretism. A syncretist says, I'll take a little bit of historic Christianity. I'll take a little bit of Buddhism. I'll take a little bit of Hinduism, a, a dash of Taoism, maybe a little bit of Scientology. Now, that's a little weird. Let's leave that out. But all these other things we're going we're gonna to throw in, and that will become my new religious worldview. You see, King Solomon did not entirely abandon God. He just 
added other gods to the altar of his heart. He was the classic syncretist. And so we are always one step away from syncretism, namely incorporating principles and ideology from other religions and worldviews into the Christian faith. Solomon did it. Israel did it. And you know who's doing it today? The postmodern church. And I, I see this all the time. I used to get several Christian magazines, good Christian magazines in the day. But now what I tend to see is syncretism. I, I, I can't handle it. And so I, I cut those off. But the postmodern church today is a church that is largely consumed with syncretism. I read an article just a few weeks ago about a church in the South. This is a church that raised up the, uh, a very prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I titled this section, The Deadly Compromise at First Baptist Church. The article reads, A new non-discrimination policy at First Baptist Church in Greenville will offer same-sex marriages and ceremonies to allow membership, leadership positions, church ordinances, and ordination to openly gay and transgender individuals without telling them their lifestyles contradict biblical teaching. It's going to open up a space for evangelical gay people to have a place again, says Pastor Jim Dant, of his recent consensus at his church not to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. If that's not bad enough, this is what grabbed me, and I I hope this just makes your heart crumble. Pastor Dent says, quote, What we believe about marriage and family is culturally driven, not biblically driven, close quote. I thought, there it is. He, he, he's laying his cards on the table. You see, there's a movement of young thinkers called post-conservatives who don't consider themselves to be liberal enough to label themselves liberals, and they don't consider themselves to be conservative enough to number themselves among conservative thinkers. And so they have adopted this label, post-conservative. They bemoan exclusive religion and, like Solomon, have a desire to include other religious ideologies, other theologies, other philosophies in their camp. One writer, I read his book and wasted every penny I earned on it, said this, and he is a prominent leader in this movement. He says, there is the conservative Protestant Jesus, the Pentecostal charismatic Jesus, the Roman Catholic Jesus, the Eastern Orthodox Jesus, the liberal Protestant Jesus, the Anabaptist Jesus, and the Jesus of the oppressed. Quote, why not worship them all? We must resist the idea of incorporating and assimilating theological error into the fabric of the Christian faith. The truth point to close. Foreign women and foreign gods, you see, turn the heart of Solomon. Because he failed to listen to God's precepts, he fell. If Solomon, the wisest man on the planet, could fall, 
so could you, and so could I. Nehemiah thirteen twenty six says, Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, on account of such women among the many nations, there is no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. This morning, I want to ask, is your heart slowly turning like King Solomon? Or is it being transformed by the Spirit of God? As I talk to the elders, as we meet together corporately, and as I talk to them individually, we are hearing great stories of God's grace at Christ Fellowship. We are seeing lives that are being transformed. It is so exciting to see many of you plugging into ministry, involving yourself in these ministry action teams. By the way, it is not too late to plug in. And you do not just have to be on a ministry action team. You can just serve in ministry. So I encourage you to plug in and and be transformed by the sovereign work of the Spirit. This morning, before God Almighty, would you ask him, God, is there something that's smoldering in my heart? Is there something that only God knows about? And today is the day where you say, enough's enough. I must repent of my sin or compromise will grab you by the throat. We live in constant danger of having a divided heart. When the world crowds out the word of God, your heart will begin to be divided. When wealth crowds out your worship, you'll show signs of a divided heart. When gifts crowd out the giver, your heart will be divided. When a career crowds out your relationship with Jesus, your heart will show signs of division. When these things edge God out of our lives, what we do is we don't build an idol made of of wood. We don't build an idol made of stone. But in our minds, in our hearts, we begin to erect the high places. And so may we all have the heart like Josiah, that eight-year-old young man who had the courage and the integrity to obey God. Do you have the courage this morning to demolish the high places and give the triune God rightful place in your life? Oh, that we would heed the danger of a divided heart. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word and what a delight it is to spend some extended time in the pages of the Old Testament. We thank you for the examples we've seen. I I especially thank you for the example of this uh, young king, Josiah, for his obedience, for his passion to, to glorify you, for his desire to do the right thing. God, I pray that you would raise up young men and young women at Christ Fellowship to, to be just like Josiah, that you would also raise up men and women who have a, a passion to obey you, the living God. God, help us to be honest and transparent before you today, especially as we come to the table. I pray that we would confess our sin and that as your word proclaims, that when we confess it, that you are quick to forgive. You are quick to forgive, all based on the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So as we continue in worship, would you be glorified in this place? For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Here's a final challenge from uh, Elijah, in, also in the book First Kings. Elijah came to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But 
If Baal, follow him. Man, take your choice. The living God or a worthless pagan deity. Let's pray. God, we choose uh, collectively to worship you. Uh, God, we have a desire to serve you, to obey you, to live according uh, to your word. We realize that we can't do it on our own, that it is only through the power of the gospel that we can be inclined to obey, that we can be inclined to worship, that we can do any good at all. And so we recognize that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. The life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who died and died for us. So may you strengthen your people. May you um, embolden your people. And in the coming days, may we live gospel-centered lives, keeping the Lord Jesus Christ as the primary object of affection in our hearts. I pray for each person, God. I pray for young people that you would embolden them and challenge them in the days ahead to be godly young men and young women so that Jesus would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.